He is risen. Listen, first of all, for our sermon today to the Scripture from 1 Corinthians 15, 19 to 26. It's printed out in full on page 8. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people to be most pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when He comes, those who belong to Him. Then the end will come when He hands over the kingdom to God the Father after He has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. The last enemy to be, to be destroyed is death. Amen. Several years ago, I got a phone call from my little sister. She's about six years younger than me. We have two older siblings as well, but uh, much of our life, we felt like we were the only children in the house because our older siblings had moved on and moved out of the house, and so we had a special bond. And uh, I was the big brother giving her advice, and she was the little sister who, who loved my protection, I think. Anyways, uh, we hadn't talked in a long time. And so we were catching up with one another, and I happened to ask her, uh, so are you seeing anybody right now, you know, protective big brother? And she said, well, I'm glad that you asked me, um, because I'm talking to somebody on the phone every day, a a boy, and what's his name? And she said, I'm not going to say his name, but she said his name, and my heart stopped. The name that she said was a name of a man, a friend, well, friend's a general term, but an acquaintance of mine that was several years older than me that I had told my little sister never to talk to. <laughs> Don't get on the phone with him. Don't even start. And, and then she went on and on, and she started talking, and my, my blood pressure started to go up. And she said, no, we were actually getting pretty serious talking on the phone every day. And then she said, um, we're even talking about our future together. And I said, get out of here! I just about fell over. My life flashed between, in front of my eyes, imagining this, 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 this acquaintance as my brother-in-law. And then she said, April Fool's. I had never been so burned, and I didn't know that she had it in her little heart to do that to her big brother. (laughs) And Anna, if you're watching or listening, I'm still having trouble laughing about that one. (laughs) She's happily married to a man that I respect a lot. Um, But have you been tricked before? Maybe in a little way, maybe in a big way, according to thehistorychannel.com, April 1st. April Fool's Day, uh, that some people say it started in 1700 when a couple English pranksters started playing hoaxes on other people. Um, it has actually existed over hundreds of years, I found out, and it, 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 it's not always the same in every culture. One historian says that it goes back to the 16th century, about 1582 or 83, when the French were changing from the Julian calendar, the old calendar system, to the modern-day Gregorian calendar, And the people who didn't get the message about the calendar change um, 
they were called April Fools because they celebrated the new year not on January 1, but on the end of March and the beginning and the first day of April, April Fools. And so they'd play tricks on them, or so the, the History Channel says that, uh, that, that, that paper fish would be put on their back when they weren't looking and they, to symbolize uh, April fish or a fish that was easily caught or a gullible person. Have you ever been tricked in a big way before? Maybe it was a car salesman selling you a lemon. Maybe it was a friend who had made a big promise. And after looking at it from 2020, you see that that promise was meant to burn you, burn you instead of to help you. How did it feel? Did you feel scared, uh, angry? vulnerable, all of these emotions come into play. The Corinthians, they were a congregation um, that Paul had ministered to, and he had it seemingly brought them the gospel. The biggest trick had been played on them after Paul left when somebody else came in after him and had preached something that was contrary to the very facts of history and the scriptures. They said that The resurrection didn't happen, that there's no resurrection from the dead, and your body is going to remain in the ground forever, and there's no life, really, to have hope in after this, and that Jesus didn't rise from the dead either. And Paul, in in the Hallmark chapter, uh, I think throughout the entire scripture, this chapter really boils it down and teaches us about the resurrection. In the Hallmark chapter of the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, he puts... He, he, he points them back to the historicity of the resurrection. I'm talking about the physical resurrection of Jesus. And then he says this, If you believe in Jesus, and yet you've thrown away the physical resurrection from the dead, Easter, then you've basically stomped on your faith. There's no reason to believe in Jesus after all. There's no reason to be a Christian. There's no reason for you to hold on to any hope at all because if the hope is dashed at the tomb and that he's still in the ground and he isn't risen, then there's no reason to have hope in any of his, who he says he is, his promises, or your future. And you, if you call yourself a believer and don't, take, and don't believe in the resurrection, are to be the biggest April fish that there is. And so he takes that and he says this, and we're going to go in two areas. First of all, don't be tricked by a life without Easter. Number one, a life without Jesus' resurrection is a trick. And number two, we'll get to this in a minute, a life with Jesus' resurrection is a life that's on target, a life with hope and a future. A life without Jesus' resurrection is a trick. And that's why Paul says what he says in 19. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people to be most to be pitied. Today we struggle with um, the resurrection because I don't know about you, but I've never seen somebody die and come back to life again. That's something that I struggle with because I've never experienced it myself. And I'm sure that there, there are some news reports from time to time, and maybe you've read them or heard the stories before about somebody's heartbeat that has slowed down to such a slow pace that they're deemed medically dead. And then just hours later, when they're preparing the body, the body comes back to life again. That's not dying. Or you might hear about somebody on the, med- on the uh, operating table whose heart stops, but then the doctors can, by the modern miracle of medicine, jolt that thing and get it pumping again and getting started again. 
But it's difficult for us to understand this. Jesus really died. It wasn't like he had slowed his heartbeat down a whole bunch. He was put to death on Good Friday by professional executioners whose job the Roman soldier was to make sure that that person was dead. And if that person wasn't dead, do you know who died? <laughs> the Roman soldier. And so you have Jesus on this cross, and, and it says in the historical account, it, it depicts a Roman execution just the way that it was, that he stopped breathing, he gave up his own spirit, and after that, a soldier came up to him and did what? Pierced him in his side, and the blood and the water came out. You can't tell me that he slowed his heartbeat down after that. And he was wrapped in cloths, and over the course of three days, almost 48 hours over the course of those three days, he was in a tomb without breathing. And then he came out of that tomb, not panting like somebody would who uh, slows down, who, who, whose heartbeat has slowed down, or, or they're, they're, medically, they're medically handicapped, but he came out vibrant and alive. And, and just as full of life, if not more full of life, than he was the week before. He was really alive. But Paul says, he says this to the Corinthians, you gotta see, it's not what you have to see to believe. This isn't some kind of resurrection that was an accident. And, and some people today believe this too. They say Jesus was raised from the dead, but he really wasn't raised physically. He was raised spiritually from the dead so that we too can be spiritually raised from the dead. No, no. That's not what this is saying. What Paul is saying is that he physically walked out of that tomb as, as, a, as a live human being in the flesh. And if Jesus isn't risen from the dead, we have some problems with our faith. Number one, we can't trust who Jesus says that he is. Jesus made big claims, and his number one claim was, I am the Son of God. The Father and I are one. I am from heaven. And if he didn't come out of the tomb like he said that he would, then he's a liar. And we have no reason to follow a liar. Earlier that week, um, <coughs> Jesus was talking to the religious leaders of his time, and, uh, and he was standing at the temple, and he said, you destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it back up again. They found out later he wasn't talking about the temple. He was talking about his own body. But if he made promises and claims like that, but then he never came through with them, he's a liar and he's not God. That's our first problem with our faith without the resurrection, the big trick, if, if he never came out of the tomb. Number two is the promises. The promises that he made, uh, for instance, I'll be with you always to the very end of the age. How can you trust somebody that's a liar with that promise in your life? I, uh, he made promises that I'm the bread of life. I'm the water uh, that springs up and I give you vibrancy and I give you life and I, and, I, and I am the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the way to God. How can I ever know that I have a way to God if the liar has made that promise? So I can't trust his identity. I can't trust his promises. And I can't know about my future. Because if he's never come out of the tomb, where am I going to be when I go into the ground? The biggest trick that's played on us is the devil convincing us that the resurrection didn't happen and yet we still hold on to Jesus. Arthur Miller was uh, the author of Death of a Salesman, the play, and later on he wrote another play called After the Fall. He gave up God and he speaks about this very clearly, but he says that after he gave up God, he still had this, this sense of judgment this sense that he needed to prove himself, 
the sense that he needed to accomplish things in his life to make other people happy or pleased. And he says, I was expecting when I gave up God for all of that to go away, but actually it was replaced by a sense of people-pleasing. Another man named Ernest Becker, he's a Jewish agnostic. He was a person, a famous writer who studied humans, basically, an anthropologist. And he said this after he gave up God. He said, The self-glorification that we need in our innermost being, we now look for in the love partner. The love partner becomes the divine ideal within which to fulfill one's life. What is it that we want when we elevate the love of partner to this position? We want to be rid of our faults. We want to be rid of our feelings of nothingness. We want to be justified. We want to know that our existence hasn't been in vain. We want redemption, nothing less. Now, think with me here. These are people who have given up God, that don't believe in the physical resurrection of the dead. But they're still... (laughs) The Bible would say that they have replaced what only God can give... And they've run after it in a relationship with another person. They say, I'm going to find justification with a love partner, with a soulmate, with somebody that can bring me justification for who I am, and I'm going to look to them for that. And, and, or, or it could be your success, or it could be your career, or, or whatever it is. At least they have something that they can hold on to. But if you've believed in Jesus as your Savior and Redeemer like you do, and as the risen Lord that lives today, and yet... And yet you have run after a relationship for your identity, or you've run after your career for identity, or you've run after, um, uh, uh, like Arthur Miller says, this, this, need, this, this, this need to be proven. And you haven't looked to God for that, the risen Savior? Then what are we doing? We might as well fold up all the chairs and go home. But He is risen. And we do have hope. Verse 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come. When he hands over the kingdom of God to God the Father, After he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. First of all, Paul says this in no uncertain terms. The resurrection is a fact. It's a historical fact, and we can't get around that. Three things, real quick. Number one, the resurrection, he says earlier in chapter 15, was witnessed not by one or two people, that they quick wrote down what they saw, but it was witnessed at one time no less than 500 people saw the risen Savior all at once. 500 people. And Paul says this, if you think that I'm just making that number up, some of them have passed away because this was, letter was being written a little bit later, but he says that most of them are still alive today. Call them up. I'll give you their address. They can talk to you about the risen Savior. Not one or two, 500 can talk to you about seeing this. The very mass of witnesses. I mean, uh, George Washington, we don't have it recorded 500 people seeing him. Although I'm sure that there were, but we don't have it recorded. And yet you believe in a historical figure like that. So that's the first thing is the mass of people and eyewitnesses that saw this miracle. Number two, and this is one of my favorites, James. Uh, Paul talks about this half-brother of Jesus who had gone his whole life 
not believing that Jesus was the Son of God. Even through Jesus' ministry, as Jesus was doing miracles and as Jesus was proving himself that he was from God, James, the half-brother of Jesus, says, "Uh uh-uh, and I don't care, and I have an older brother, I don't care how holy he is, if he claimed to be God and he lived a really, really good life, I would still doubt it, and I'd say, no, that's Jeremy. (laughs) That's not God. But if my older brother had a spear put into his side on a Roman cross, physically died, and for three days remained in the tomb, and then he came out more vibrant than ever, I would bow down and say, yes. The credibility of the quality of the witnesses, even the half-brother, the the people that was the toughest sell, James became one of the heads of the churches, and he wrote an entire book in the Bible that we have today that talks about how his faith is active and alive because Jesus died on the cross for his sins and rose again physically to give us eternal life. And number three, so we have the mass of witnesses, we have the quality of the witnesses, and number three, and I've said this one before, the first witnesses at the tomb were women. Women in the time of that Jewish uh, culture, their vote in court or their witness in court didn't mean as much as a man's. You needed like two or three women to all agree on something to stand up in court, whereas it only took one man's witness to stand up in court. And if you're a critic of the resurrection or you doubt the resurrection, you say, this is just a made-up story, this is just a legend. Well, why would a legend writer put women at the tomb as the first witnesses? Unless they were really telling the truth. The Bible is too honest, and the story of the resurrection is too honest, for it not to be real that Jesus really came out of the tomb. But... Jesus didn't just do this to show off, and this is kind of getting to our last point. He did this because he wanted to bless you and me with this, and it's going to change our perspective forever on how we live in our body and in our soul. It says this, it says that Jesus is the first fruits from among the dead, that he is the very first one to come out of the ground, and that means that the rest of us are going to have the same. The first fruits is a a reference, go back a slide for a second, please. You see it on the screen in a couple of places that he's called the first fruits from among the dead. The first fruits was an Old Testament harvesting worship ritual where uh, in the springtime, in fact, around the time of the Passover, the very first shoot that comes out of the ground, even before all the rest, but when you saw that first shoot come out of the ground, Moses says, take that shoot and bring it as an offering to show God that you're thankful for the very first crop that he's given you. Seven weeks later, they would do a grain harvest in the same kind of attitude of thankfulness to God because God wasn't just going to give them a shoot. What was he going to do? He was going to give them a whole field of crops that could be harvested and could feed them. Well, in the same way, the Bible says this, that Jesus is the first fruits. He's the very best and he's the very first that has been coming out of the ground and and, and being offered to God. And so why, why do we have confidence that in the resurrection? We have confidence in the resurrection because Jesus came out of the ground. That whole harvest of believers, of people, are going to be raised from the dead physically because Jesus was physically raised from the dead. The first fruits from among the dead. And so death for us is this simple. Our soul goes to heaven, the Bible says, and on the judgment day when Jesus comes back, that whole harvest of your body is going to be made vibrant and alive again, more vibrant and alive than you've ever experienced it before. That means something incredible. To close. It really means two things. Number one, God cares for your body. And number two, God cares for your soul.
how does that change the way that we think about our body? How does the way that think about our soul? You might be a religious person. I'm going to just kind of put you into a silo for a second. If you're a religious person who loves going to church, loves studying the Bible, loves doctrine, loves getting the head knowledge, loves dissecting every piece of Scripture, and you say, this is truth, that God has redeemed me and and he's bought my soul forever in heaven, and yet the rest of your life, you say, ah, the body doesn't mean anything. I can do whatever I want with my body unless I have right doctrine and I can think about the right things and I know the right things because I have the scriptures memorized. But that whole thing about my body, I don't have to care about that. No. No. Jesus says he died for your sins and he rose to give you a perfect body someday. That's not an excuse to let your body go. But Paul says in another place that your body has been redeemed by God to be a temple of the Holy Spirit. God cares so much for your body that he, he, he was raised again to give you a perfect body. So now your reflection of his love in your life isn't just head knowledge from the Bible, but it's applying it to your life. It's living out in your body and saying, I believe in the resurrection and I believe in it so much that I'm going to treasure this body. I'm going to love this body because God loves this body. He's given it to me for eternity. If you're new with us at Holy Word, or if you've been with us for a long time, we teach the Word of God and, and, and we, we, we drink from it richly and deeply in, in all places in our life. But to have the resurrection means that, that we're going to care for the body too. Because God does. It's why every year our youth group goes out to Arizona and goes on a mission trip. And they give the Word of God to people. But they don't just give the Word of God to people. They also cook meals for the community. They also do family life resources and seminars for the people in that community because the message of the resurrection is God cares for you, body, mind, and spirit. All of it. It's the reason why we have a care team and individuals who care for the body. When somebody has had a death or somebody has had a birth, and they can't do all the things that they used to do. Or somebody's disabled or sick or in the hospital or a shut-in. And we have somebody at their door that says, Here, let me make you a hot dish. Let me cook you a meal. Let me love you because I believe that Jesus is risen. And that he's come out of the tomb. And that he lives today. And that his spirit lives in me. And I care for your body. And I care for your soul. You see, no other philosophy, religion, whatever, preaches the whole body and soul all in one. If you're, if you're a religious person, that's how this will change your mind. Is that to care for the body is to care for the soul. To care for the soul is to care for the body because God has done both. It's why every year we, we have a back-to-school splash in the summertime to serve this community around us. Whether they come to us or not, we say to, we say to them, we care enough for you that we're going to put school supplies into your backpacks and give you that for free. That we're going to care for your mind, your education, and the advancement of the things in this world because we have a greater future that we want to tell you about. And last year we did that to over 120 families in need. We're going to do it again this year. We're going to love people in their body. But here's, here's the last point. It's not all about just here and now and the body. You've heard that phrase before, YOLO, right? You only live once. That's a doctrine. 
That's actually a, a, a doctrine that this world has come up with that says there is no future, there is no resurrection. All you need to do is pour everything you can into this giant cup of your life and experience as much as you want to experience and as much as you can. Well, if you have fallen into that doctrine of YOLO, and it's very easy to do, even for believers, here's some news. It's not just about the body. It's about your soul. Every person at the resurrection will be raised in their body. Everyone, whether you believe in Jesus or not. But up to that day, wherever your soul is, your body will follow. And maybe you have poured your life into drinking up everything that this world has to offer, but you have neglected the soul. Well, if your soul isn't following God today, and you go like that to the end of life or to the day that Jesus returns, it's not going to be following God. It's not going to be close to God. In fact, it's going to be separated from God forever. Your body, I'm talking about too. And so consider this. If, you're, if, you've, if, you've, if you've poured yourself into YOLO, whatever your YOLO is, personal relationships, like we saw those examples before, or career or family experiences, all good things. They're not bad things. But if you're, if you're 100% into that, and yet you've neglected the soul, I want to tell you today that you're invited to come and follow us by following Jesus who came out of the tomb. And he says, and he says this, that in my word is where I'm going to bring you closer to God. In my word, I'm going to bring you to the tomb that's empty. In my word, I'm going to give you the words of eternal life. My person is real. Jesus Christ is king, and he rules over all things. And he is who he says that he is. My promises are true. I'm going to be with you always to the very end of the age. Your sins are forgiven by grace alone. And your future is in store. When you believe in me, there's no separation. The redemption that you've been looking for in other places can only be found in the one who walked out of the tomb. Here at Holy Word, we offer a message for you like this every week, Sundays. It's pretty amazing how that schedules out. (laughs) Every Sunday you can hear this for your soul to go out and live it in your body. You can hear this every week in a connect group. A connect group where people, young and old, um, mixed men and women, just women, just men, whatever you're comfortable in, meets around God's Word and says, I want to drink deep from this because it's there in your Word that my soul is being strengthened. If, if you're young, if, if you're a baby, we start strengthening your soul. We bring you to the waters of baptism and we give you new life. If you're considering baptism, that's a great place to start, but it just doesn't end there. The resources that our cradle roll gives to you for your children. There's a child care center where your children are going to get what? The Word of God every day to grow their soul and to care for their body. Um, our, there's, a, there's a class right before high school called Confirmation Class. High school, the most formative years in somebody's life. And here we have sitting down with a pastor for two years, once a week, to study God's Word and to grow closer to God before, before going into those difficult years. We have an opportunity from, from cradle to casket for you to grow closer to God so that when that day comes and when the question is in your mind, does God love me, you can say yes because he died for my sins. I know it for sure. My faith is strong and I'm ready for him to take me to be with him. Don't be tricked with a life without Easter. Your God loves you. 
and he's kept your life right on target. He cares for your body. He cares for your body enough that he gives you eternal life in your body forever with him in heaven. He cares for your soul by giving you Christian community, by giving you his word, by giving you the promises that will never pass away because he is risen. He is risen Amen.